We are really excited about the calling workshop that's this coming Saturday. If you haven't registered yet, go ahead and do that. Uh, you can take out your phone right now, it's okay, in church, and scan the QR code on the screen so that you can have that and register uh, even right now or later. I think this workshop will really help you discern God's calling on your life for this next season, whether you're a youth or young adult, college, middle age, even a retirement person. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a workshop that will be really good for anybody, not just leaders, to discern God's calling on our lives. It'll be very relevant. I know there's a time commitment there. I know it's a Saturday. Uh, let me encourage you to DVR your college football game and tell your spouse that you'll be back for date night later or whatever you have going on that Saturday. You won't regret dedicating a short amount of time to discern God's calling in this next season. I think it'll be more important than the Texas A&M game that, or whatever you're going to miss there. Uh, you'll get a practical workbook that will really help you. And if all of that doesn't really motivate you, I'll just say one more thing. Chick-fil-A. Okay, so just come for the Chick-fil-A. We will be uh, enjoying that for lunch together. All right, so today we're continuing our Rise Up and Build series, and uh, we're entering into kind of part two where we dig into Nehemiah, so you can turn in your Bible there to Nehemiah chapter one. And as you're doing that, let me start with this true story about two brothers who made history down in the Outer Banks, North Carolina. I'm talking, of course, about Orville and Wilbur Right. Here's a picture of me and my father-in-law at the Wright Brothers National Museum down in Kitty Hawk. For the Wright Brothers, their dream of flying traced back to when they were little kids, and their dad actually bought them a toy helicopter that they were playing around with, and the toy actually broke, but rather than fix that or replace that, they figured out how to build their own helicopter, and when they were little boys, right there and then, their dream of flying was conceived inside of their hearts. 25 years later, they found themselves down on the Outer Banks, uh, and if you visit there, you'll see at the top of this very large sand dune, it's covered by grass now, but it was a sand dune, there's a huge memorial that's constructed uh, on top of the dune from which they would be launching their glider. And so they would walk up this large sand dune, dragging this heavy glider up this hill over and over and over again and again and again. And from there, they would launch and they would crash and they would spin out or the engine would blow up. Uh, and for some reason or other, it would just continue to fail and fail and fail and fail until on December 17th, 1903, at 10.35 a.m., they launched... And for 12 seconds, 12 glorious, beautiful, gravity-defying, wonderful seconds, they flew 120 feet along that, those windy sand dunes in the outer banks of North Carolina. And for those 12 seconds, it must have been glorious for those two brothers. This was a lifetime in the making. And those 12 seconds changed history forever. That's when Orville and Wilbur Wright really secured their place in history by executing the first powered and sustained flight from level ground. In the field of aviation, this historic event marked the beginning of airline travel, uh, something we really can't imagine uh, not existing at this point. Uh, today, uh, there will be 23,000 scheduled flights that take off and land at our American airports. Uh, right now, there's a 1 million people flying at 30,000 feet in the air at any given moment on any given day. Uh, without even knowing it, the Wright brothers were creating the airline industry, the FAA, the TSA, and even the NASA space program. 
all of this can be traced back to these amazing 12 seconds. It started with a dream. It started with a vision. It started with a calling. It started with a belief. It started when they thought against all odds and against the law of gravity and despite what they were told, they believed something. And here's what they believed. They believed they could fly and they believed they should fly. It's impossible to really imagine life as we know it without airplanes today. But like any innovation, like every revolution, like every breakthrough, somebody had to imagine this thing that seemed impossible first. And so let me start the message today with that question posed to you. What do you believe could be and what do you believe should be? In other words, when you look around at your community and your life, or when you look around at the economy or at the school system, or when you see what's happening in our world with families, or when you see the state of our nation, or when you see what's going on today with children, or when you look around at your neighborhood, or when you look around at your own world, what is it that captures your attention? What do you believe could be, and what do you believe should be? Or to put that question a different way, what breaks your heart? What is it that when you're alone, you think about it? Maybe you try not to think about it, but you can't really get it off of your mind, and you don't like to think about it because it gets you emotional. And you wish God would do something about that. What breaks your heart? I ask you that because sometimes a broken heart becomes a big vision. And that's what happens in our text today in Nehemiah chapter 1. As we meet this man, Nehemiah, it's really a story about a man with a broken heart. And that's the title of my message today. A broken heart becomes a big vision. You'll see three different parts to the passage. We'll see the passion of Nehemiah, the prayer of Nehemiah, and the position of Nehemiah. I want to start today by just reading the passage for you. It's, it's an entire chapter of the Bible. And then after that, we'll look at the details. So if you have a copy of God's Word or the Bible app open, just go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. And if you will, in honor of God's Word, I would invite you to stand if you're able And let's take a look at these sacred scriptures together. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. 
Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. And dear God, thank you for your word and for preserving this text today. Would you make it rich and make it real for us as we pause and listen to what you, Holy Spirit, might be having to say to us. We also take a moment to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Our hearts are heavy hearing about the events happening in the nation of Israel right now as they are at war. We ask that you provide wisdom to those in military leadership and that you would look in mercy on the innocent who've exposed themselves to peril. So bring about comfort, bring about justice, bring about relief from suffering. And we ask that you please remove the causes and the occasions of this war and restore peace among the nations. We pray all of this in the name of the Prince of Peace himself through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now bless our time in your word, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Before we look again at chapter 1, verse 1, I just want to remind you where we are in this series as we're kind of entering into phase 2 and where we are in history. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah takes place in the period of time between 538 and 440, 433 B.C. In Jewish tradition, the book of Nehemiah is actually called Second Ezra because it's really just a continuation of the story of Ezra that we've been studying and the story of the post-exilic time period. You'll recall that there were three main characters in these two books. The first main character was named Zerubbabel, a man who was planted over in Babylon but returned to rebuild the temple of God, and he finished that mission. Then we learned in chapter 7 there was a man named Ezra, what you may not have noticed is there's a 58-year time gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Ezra, which means this book, although it's historical, does not take every historical detail into account when it is teaching us about these events. And you see this gap, and you're kind of forced to ask, what was happening? Well, what was happening are actually some of the most important events in all of Grecian history. The Battle of Salamis, the Battle of Thermopylae, those battles determined the entire future of the Grecian Empire. But I want you to notice that they're totally passed over in the Word of God, in silence. And we're asking why. The reason, friends, is because the most important thing that was happening during that time from heaven's perspective is that God was preparing a man named Ezra. And Ezra became the one that God used to restore his people. We were introduced to him last week. Then we meet our third character today. His name's Nehemiah. And it's him that God calls to finish rebuilding this entire restoration project. And we'll see him today. So now that I've set out all the table, let's go ahead and eat. Verse 1, uh, you'll remember, says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, Nehemiah uh, literally means the Lord comforts. Hakaliah is the cousin to another Jewish man named Hakalugi. Hakaliah, <laughs> just a stupid joke. Okay, so Nehemiah, his, name's, his name means the Lord comforts. He, he brings comfort to God's people in the time of their distress. And that's because our God sees his people when we are hurting, and he sends us his comfort. Sometimes he sends us his comfort in the form of a person. This is what God had promised in Isaiah 
for his people after the exile in chapter 40. You'll recall these words. Isaiah said, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So Nehemiah is the fulfillment of God's promise of comfort. Now he was a Jewish man who stayed behind in Persia, and though many of the exiles had already gone back in the two different waves, there was 50,000 who went back in the first wave and 5,000 who went back in the second wave, Nehemiah stayed behind. And the reason he stayed behind is because he was serving in a government position. Uh, we learned at the end of chapter 1 what his position was. He tells us, I was the cupbearer to the king. Now that might not sound very impressive to you. It kind of sounds like a dishwasher or something like that. But actually, the cupbearer was a very important political position in ancient times. The cupbearer was the right-hand man of the king. It was his responsible to protect the king and to taste the wine before the king drank it and to sample the food before the king ate it. Now, some of you are going, I think I would like this job. <laughs> Here, Nehemiah, smell this. Here, Nehemiah, taste this. Does your spouse ever bring you something from the fridge that's maybe rotten, and they put it in your nose, and they're like, here, honey, smell this. Why do I want to smell that if you don't think it smells good? This is Nehemiah's job. No, in all seriousness, if somebody was trying to poison the king, the cupbearer would be poisoned first, the king's life would be spared, and they had to put out the job description for a new cupbearer. So in that day, he was like the secret service agent who was ready to give his life to save the person who was highest in command. And so this, as you might imagine, this had to be somebody the king trusted. This had to be somebody that the king had an intimate relationship with uh, and access to the king. This was a person with great political influence. This is who Nehemiah was. Right man, right place, right time. After we're introduced to him, we learn in verse 2 that on an average day at the palace in Susa in Persia, Nehemiah gets some visitors, including his brother, who comes 900 miles from the Holy Land with a message. It says, In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Notice, Nehemiah begins by asking them questions about how is it going. He's concerned about God's people. He's concerned about God's city. And that leads me to highlight an important observation as we're considering our own calling. Sometimes a calling just begins as a concern. I want you to think about that for a moment. What is it that concerns you? What is it that's burdensome inside of your own life and your own heart? We hear, we hear things every day that concern us, that disturb us, right? Let me encourage you to pay attention to what concerns you. Pay attention to what disturbs you. A lot of times we don't like to sit there and dwell there. We don't want to know more, and we kind of look the other way if we get disturbed because we know if we get more information, that's going to lead to obligation, and we don't want that. And so sometimes we just pretend like nothing's going on or it's all going to work out or we'll just not ask and, and not think about it, but that doesn't mean it's not happening, we're just living in denial. And so Nehemiah's not like that. Nehemiah cared enough to ask. So let me ask you as we begin this message. Do you care enough to ask? When you get a missionary prayer letter or, or an email, do you care enough to read it and find out what's going on with them? When you ask people how they're doing, do you 
linger and listen for their answer? Do you care enough to ask? Remember the words of Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's Nehemiah. He cares enough to ask. And then they give this answer. Look at verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. This is what we were afraid of. There's bad news. The phrase great trouble means they were very vulnerable because in this position without a wall, there was no protection for God's people. In ancient times, walls were very important around cities. Without walls, it was almost impossible to sleep in peace. It was impossible to feel like your home would be a place of refuge. It was impossible for them to worship God without anxiety and worry. In ancient times, having a strong city wall with strong gates was absolutely crucial to their security. The purpose of the wall was to protect all the inhabitants on the inside from attacks that would come from the outside. Without it, they're exposed all the time. Imagine, if you will, if you were a teenager. And I don't know if this has ever happened to anybody, but if, if you were a teenager and you got in trouble, sometimes if you did something really bad, what mom and dad would do to punish you is they would take the door off the hinges and you no longer had a door. And so as a teenager, it's hard to describe how that feels to be in a room with no door, but you're just, there's no privacy, you're always exposed, you're, it's very vulnerable to live in a room without a door for a set period of time. If you can think about that feeling of exposure, I want you to multiply that times a million as the whole city is missing the door. And so they're in disgrace. The word disgrace there means they're being slandered, they're being mocked. Other nations are scorning them. Look at these people. Look at these Jews. Is this your God who protects you like this? Your city is in shambles. You're weak. It's shameful. It's a disgrace. And so Nehemiah hears about this. He sees the problem right away, and he realizes that God's people are out in the open. There's no safety. There's no security. And this bad news absolutely broke Nehemiah's heart. Look at what it says in verse 4. It says, when I heard these things I sat down and I wept. You see, for Nehemiah, this was not just news and information. He was hearing about people that he loved, people that he cared about. He was hearing about the situation over in Jerusalem, and it was absolutely breaking his heart. He's not saying, hey, I'm over here in Persia, in Susa. It's a nice palace over here. I got prosperity. I got wealth, uh, you know, too bad things are rough over there. Sorry to hear that. No. Nehemiah's heart was broken. Why was Nehemiah's heart so broken? My professor, Howard Hendricks, used to say it this way. Nehemiah was a man with a dislocated heart. In other words, he lived over there in Persia, locationally. But his heart really resided in Jerusalem with the people of God. Now think about that for a moment, because what impresses me about Nehemiah is not only that he was a brave and respectable statesman, not only was he an incredible leader and, and firm and resolute, he's also very tender and very compassionate. You see, here we learn that Nehemiah not only cared enough to ask, Nehemiah cared enough to weep. So can I ask you a question? Is there something around you that God has placed on your heart that's so tender that's so heartbreaking to you that when you hear about it or when you see it, 
or when you think about it, it actually makes you cry. Do you have a dislocated heart? Is there something that keeps you up at night? What is it that you see that and you go, somebody really needs to do something about that? And that feeling on the inside that you have could be that God has placed that in you to send a message to you. Have you ever considered that perhaps it's God who's the one who's given that burden to you? Perhaps it's God who's the one who's calling you to get more involved in that situation. This is what Nehemiah is discerning, and he begins to weep over God's people. Not only does he weep, but it says this next. It says, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, after he gets this bad news, Nehemiah spends several days weeks and months really, in fasting and in prayer before God because he was dependent on God. Not only did he care enough to ask, not only did he care enough to weep, but number three, Nehemiah cared enough to pray. In fact, as we study the book of Nehemiah, you will see 12 different times Nehemiah will stop to pray to the God of heaven. So can I ask you, when was the last time you were so moved by something that you actually fasted and you prayed for God to be at work? Is there anything that pushes you like that towards God? The New Testament teaches us that prayer and fasting can be a means by which God tells his people to seek his face and have him act on our behalf. The Lord Jesus promised us in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. Prayer is the most powerful tool we have because in so doing, I'm availing myself of God's everlasting power. And yet for many of us, it's one of the most neglected tools in the Christian arsenal. Do you care enough to pray? So we've seen the passion of Nehemiah, and now this leads us to movement two as we look at the prayer of Nehemiah. In this case, Nehemiah's prayer is actually recorded here for us in the scriptures, and it's a wonderful prayer. It becomes a model prayer that we can use in order to learn how better to pray when we take our petitions to God. So look at it again in verse 5. Nehemiah says, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I want you to notice how Nehemiah begins his prayer because he begins his prayer the way that we ought to begin our prayers as well with words of adoration for all that God is and all that he's done. He's addressing God by God's attributes that he's revealed to us, his people. Notice he says God is great and God is awesome. These are words that speak to God's strength and his power. Why would he begin that way? Because when you're facing a difficult situation, this is the kind of God I need to remember that I have. When we're afraid, when I'm scared, when I'm anxious, I need to remind myself that God is able. He's up to this task that's at hand. There's nothing that's too difficult for him. When we pray, we need to address God for who he says he really is. He's great, and he is awesome. Also, I want you to notice here that our fears can be addressed in prayer by praying God's attributes back to him. When we 
come to God in prayer, our fears are assuaged. Chuck Swindoll says it this way. He says this, your knees can't knock if you're kneeling on them. See, when I face heartbreaking and scary circumstances, I have two choices. I can panic or I can pray. Now, one of those things is going to lead me wrong. And one of those things is going to lead me to God's power. Nehemiah chooses to pray. Notice also, Nehemiah doesn't just talk about God's great and awesome power. He also mentions God's covenant of love with his people. Did you see that? That word love there is the Hebrew word chesed. It refers to his loyal love, his faithful love, his steadfast love that's new every morning, his love for Nehemiah, his love for God's people, his love for you. Now, after Nehemiah addresses God for all that God is, he moves to the second element in his prayer as he moves towards confession. Look at this next section in verse 6. Nehemiah says this, I confess The sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Pause there for a second. That word confess there literally means to cast off, like throwing a a rock over into a lake. Friends, if we want to see restoration, we must learn that there are things that we must cast off from our lives and agree with God about our sin and come to him in humble confession. I need to not pass the buck or blame somebody else. I need to own up to my part and confess my sins to God. I need to say, Lord, I confess that I've sinned against you in thought, word, deed, and motive by things I've done, by things I've left undone. I've not loved you with my whole heart. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. I need to confess whatever sins the Lord brings to my mind. But I want you to notice here that he's not just confessing individually his own sins. Nehemiah is also confessing the sins of his people. Did you see that? He says, their sin is my sin too. He's including himself in a very open and honest display of humility here. Now, I want you to see here that there's a corporate aspect to the confessing of our sin before God. This may not have exactly been Nehemiah's personal individual sin that caused the exile, but he knows that in the people of God, if there's sin somewhere, then all the people are somehow responsible. We kind of miss this in our day because we think in a very individualistic fashion. But there is a corporate responsibility for holiness in the people of God. And when it's not there, there's a sense in which we're all responsible for that. And so when we pray, we need to pray together a prayer of corporate confession. We need to pray things like, Lord, we confess that the church has not always been a safe place for people to find grace and restoration. Lord, we confess the church has not always loved the poor or the orphan or the widow. Lord, we confess that as a nation, we've not valued the lives of the unborn, but we've snuffed their lives out, though they're made in your image. Lord, we confess that the church sometimes has covered up abuse and defended the abuser rather than defended the abused. Lord, we confess that the American church has often been too focused on the American dream rather than on God's dream for his church. Lord, we confess that we've been unnecessarily divisive, that we've sought to be first instead of last, that we've been self-centered instead of Jesus-centered. These are just a few of the things that are stirring in my heart as we consider how we can pray a prayer of corporate confession. So this is what Nehemiah does. 
We've seen him uh, declare God's attributes. We've seen him confess in prayer. And then he moves to the third section of the prayer. Notice how he recalls God's promises to his people in verse 8. Nehemiah says, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Pause there for a second and notice that Nehemiah is praying not so much for what he cares about, but about what God cares about. He's not praying for his own concerns or his own glory. He's praying for God's concerns and God's glory. He knows that God cares about his people. He knows that Israel is the apple of God's eye. He knows that God has not forsaken them. And here he's specifically praying a promise that was given through Moses in Deuteronomy 4, 27 to 31. He's simply praying the promise of God back to God. This is the same promise repeated in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I'll hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. That's good news for them back then today, but that's also good news for us on a very individual level. Maybe you're here and you've made a mess out of your life, but the God of Nehemiah says, no matter what you've done, I will take my people back when they seek me. They will find me when they seek after me with all of their heart. Friends, when you pray, you need to remember the promises that God has made specifically to you. One of my hobbies is just to collect God's promises that he's given to us in the New Testament scriptures. Here's some that I'll just offer you that you can claim. God, you promised that you would be with me always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28. God, you promised that you would provide all of my needs according to your riches and glory, Philippians 4. God, you promised you would provide a way of escape for every single temptation I face, 1 Corinthians 10. God, you promised that if I draw near to you, you would draw near to me, James 4. God, you promised that you would give me wisdom every time I asked you, James chapter 1. Those are just some of the powerful promises that God has given to us, his children. Now, let me make a caveat here. These are promises that are only for those who are in the family of God. And so, friend, if you're here today and you don't have a saving relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, these promises are not for you because you're not yet in a right relationship with God. The good news, though, is that you can be. If you're visiting with us today, you're gathered here today amongst many brothers and sisters in a body of believers who've already recognized the fact that we are all separated from God. You're, you're not unique in that. But because of our sin, the good news is that God has made a way for sinners to be made right with him through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He died in our place and for our sin, and it's by repenting of our sins and placing our faith in him that we are made right with God again. My friend, if you've never done that, I urge you to make things right with God today and place your faith in Christ. Then these promises will be yours. If you'd like to learn more about what that means, please get in touch with me or one of the other pastors or elders after the service. We would love to talk with you. So here, Nehemiah is reminding God of his own promises to his people. And then he concludes his prayer with his petition. And he only has one petition. 
Look how he ends his prayer here, a very specific request. Notice in verse 11, he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man that Nehemiah is referring to is the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, the most powerful man in the entire world. And here, Nehemiah is petitioning God and asking God to grant him favor. And we will see in the coming weeks that Nehemiah will ask him for permission to go and rebuild the city of God. And this is how chapter one ends. Nehemiah simply says, I was cupbearer to the king. And right here, Nehemiah begins to see there's an opportunity for him. And Nehemiah is willing to put himself on the line. He's willing to leave the comforts of the palace and go over to the ruins and work on this problem himself. He's willing to sacrifice the security of Persia and move to the dangerous territory of Jerusalem, a city with no protection. Why? Because he's a man with a dislocated heart. And this is his moment. This is his calling. This is where he was. He remembers, I was a cupbearer to the king, and the God of heaven was calling my name. Do you remember exactly where you were when the God of heaven finally got your attention? I do. This is Nehemiah's moment right here. I remember where I was. I remember what I was doing. I remember it finally dawned on me. God Almighty has a calling on my life. I was cupbearer to the king. I remember exactly where I was when God called me into full-time vocational ministry. It was a sacred moment. Where were you when God called your name? This leads us to point three. We've seen the passion of Nehemiah. We've seen the prayer of Nehemiah. And now we'll see the position of Nehemiah. See, what I want you to see here is that Nehemiah is praying and he's not just asking God to solve the problem. He's asking God to allow him to be part of the solution. And so after this prayer, after he's on his knees, Nehemiah stands up with confidence and begins to see the opportunity that God has placed before him in his life and he begins to say, I'm going to do something about this. And here, all of a sudden, he realizes his whole life's calling in this one moment. And so not only did he care enough to ask, not only did he care enough to weep, not only did he care enough to pray, but here we see Nehemiah cared enough to volunteer. Nehemiah is going to volunteer to be part of the solution to this devastating problem. And the rest of the book of Nehemiah tells that amazing story about what God does through this man. That after days and months and years and decades of this city being in ruins, God calls this man Nehemiah and he fixes the whole thing in 52 days. It's an amazing, breathtaking story and we'll get there in the coming weeks. But as we wrap up chapter one today, I just want to pause right here and look at this very personally and ask, what is the opportunity that God may have placed before you? Or let me just bring that question back around from the beginning. What breaks 
your heart. What breaks your heart? When you look around at the circumstances around you, in your community, in your circle, when you look around this world, what captures your attention? What breaks your heart? Now, the reason I put that question on the screen like that and the reason I phrased it like that was, was very intentionally because that's a different question than a lot of people are asking. This question is not, what should I do about me? This question is, what should be done around me? See the difference? See, a lot of people, when it comes to this topic, their vision is too small. It's like, well, you know, I want to lose weight. Or I want to get out of debt. And I think you should lose weight. I think you should get out of debt. Those things are fine. But there's something bigger that God has for you to make a difference around you. Isn't that what inspires you? I'll bet it is. Not people who are focused on themselves. People who see trouble around them and want to do something about it. That's Nehemiah. So what is it for you? What breaks your heart? If you don't listen to this question and the Holy Spirit's whispering, let me just warn you what's going to happen to you if you don't listen. Number one, the hound of heaven is not going to let you go. Number two, if you keep resisting, you're going to be one of those people who sits around complaining and blaming everyone else for the rest of your life. Blame, blame, blame. You're going to be one of those people who sits in front of the TV and you're going to be like, it's everybody else's fault. It's the government's fault. It's the Congress's fault. It's the president's fault. It's the school system's fault. It's the union's fault. It's the Democrats' fault. It's the Republicans' fault. It's going to be everybody else's fault. But here's the thing. People who blame things don't change things. Blame is not a strategy for change. In fact, blame is a way to get out of having to change anything. And so what if you took all that energy and instead funneled it towards changing something. A couple years ago, there was a movie called Radio. It was based on a true story from 1976. It was about a special needs young man who's made fun of by the other kids. And then he's adopted by a football coach, Coach Jones. And Jones kind of takes him under his wing and gives him odd jobs to do and makes, really makes him feel like he's part of the team. And there's this scene at the end of the movie with Radio's mom and the coach, and they're together, they're having a cup of tea and having a conversation. And she just says to the coach, why are you spending so much time helping my son Radio? And the coach simply responds by saying, because it's the right thing to do. And then she said these haunting words, quote, there's a whole lot of right out there that needs to be done, but people don't do it. That's so true. So when you look around, what needs to be done? Do you care enough to ask? Do you care enough to weep? Do you care enough to pray? Do you care enough to volunteer? So today we've seen three things. We've seen Nehemiah's passion. We've seen Nehemiah's prayer. And we've seen Nehemiah's position. But that's not just a sermon outline. It's a matrix that helps him discern how God is calling him in his life. And when you put those three things together, you begin to see how God is shaping you and the circumstances around you to put you on mission for him. This is how it works. 
Like for the Wright brothers, it was their position and their passion and their prayer that led them to their calling to figure out how to fly. Can you imagine a world where they didn't pay attention to any of that? Friends, you have no idea what hangs in the balance of what you do or don't do about your calling. So what about you? Let me put you on the screen now. How do you put those three things together in your life? So here's what I want you to consider. It's going to take Nehemiah 52 days to get this done. It's going to take about 52 more days for us to get to the end of this sermon series as well. So for the next 52 days, would you just commit this matter of your own calling before God in prayer? Would you consider your passion and your prayer and your position and ask God to show you how these three things have aligned together and how they intersect? Would you ask God about this burden that you feel that breaks your heart and ask him if he put that there himself? This is what we're going to be talking about on the calling workshop this weekend, this Saturday. I hope you'll join us for that. But let's pray and let's ask ourselves this question for 52 days. What breaks your heart? I'd like to invite the worship team to come and lead us in one final song. And as they do, let me just make one final point. Nehemiah's broken heart was by God's divine design. God's the one who's at work behind the scenes here. God's at work all the time. All of this really is in preparation for what God wants to do in his vast and great plan for his people. All of Nehemiah's building project was a small part of God's greater plan to send his son. Because long before these circumstances broke Nehemiah's heart, our sin broke God's heart. And God decided to do something about it and come and pay the price for our sin. And just as Nehemiah wept over the city of Jerusalem, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, came and he wept over the city of Jerusalem. Our sin broke his heart so much that he laid down his life as a sacrifice for his people so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved. And it's the same God that was at work in Nehemiah's heart. And friends, it's this same God that's at work in your heart today. So can you imagine a church full of men and women who really embrace God's calling on their lives? Let's be that church. And Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for you preserving this text and speaking to us very personally today. Our lives provide us with plenty of challenges spiritual challenges, family challenges, work challenges, ministry challenges. But we also know in your word that you strategically place us where we are and when we would live to address those challenges. You call us to pray. And you call us to humbly pray your promises right back to you and to offer ourselves to you to be part of the solution. So our prayer today is that would you break our heart for what breaks your heart and help us to be a people who discern that and who care enough to ask and who care enough to weep and who care enough to pray and who even care enough to volunteer. We pray that for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.